0: Hello everyone, thank you for crossing the road for us tonight, and welcome to ACME X rather than M Pavilion, but we do hope to see you at M Pavilion very soon. My name is Jessie French, I'm the Deputy Creative Director of M Pavilion, and tonight we're really happy to have a talk from our very special guest, Jack Self, who I'm sure you maybe know a little bit about, but after this talk you'll know a lot more about. We'd also like to acknowledge uh, that we are on the land of the traditional owners, uh, the Bunurung people, uh, and we like to acknowledge um, elders, past, present, and to the future, and also to any Indigenous people here tonight. Uh, we also like to acknowledge that um, the land was never ceded. Without further ado, I'll um, welcome Jack Self because he's very good at speaking. Thank you, Jesse. That's very kind of you. Um, and thank you uh, all for coming. Uh, I, I'm going to do kind of unusual structure of a lecture, I guess, in a way. Uh, I want to focus on, I think, maybe eight or nine sort of core ideas that I've been thinking about the last five or six years, and then uh, maybe give you some examples of, of how that is uh, applied in, in different types of projects. Um, uh, Of course, I would not assume that any of you would uh, know anything about me. I I direct the Real Foundation. It's uh, a cultural institute and an architectural practice based in London. It stands for the Real Estate Architecture Laboratory, and a lot of our work focuses on, uh, in a sense, one might say, uh, form-following finance. uh, uh, How uh, particularly... uh, Well, our ambitions and our our goals as a foundation uh, have very kind of clear social objectives, and they are the promotion of democracy uh, and inclusivity and and tolerance, which I've discovered is more of a problematic word in an Australian context than I had anticipated, uh, and the pursuit of equality, um, equality of many kinds, of of wealth equality, class equality, gender equality, race equality, and what we might call um, spatial equality or civic equality, which is, uh, I guess, uh, the right of uh, people... Uh, to form communities and the right of them to to occupy uh, uh, the city. Um, today, or this evening, I'm going to talk about what it means to live today. Uh, in a sense, I guess the first question is, you know, what is the relevance of architecture to contemporary life? Um, and in order to answer that question, in a sense, what is contemporary life? Um, and what does it mean to live today, therefore? This is the only kind of negative slide I'm going to have in here. Uh, but in, in effect, if I, if I can understand what it means to live today, it, it basically means a kind of perpetual crisis uh, as a distraction from long-term wealth redistribution. Uh, the financialization of everyday life, debt, exhaustion, self-exploitation, neo-feudalism, competition and scarcity. I think no uh, example summarizes this condition, uh, which I'm sure many of you will be aware of uh, better than the example that I had a few days ago, which was before I was even awake, I had my mobile phone up to my face And uh, before I was even really aware of where I was, I was being confronted by the trauma of a mass shooting in Las Vegas. Uh, That, of course, immediately impacts your mentality for the day. And then even before you've got out of bed, you're then dealing with a dozen requests uh, uh, for decisions that need to be made via emails that have uh, come overnight. Uh, And you find yourself constantly kind of doing two things. One is trying to offset responsibility by creating a paper trail that you push to other people. And the other is you're finding yourself constantly being asked to make decisions about everything. It's not just, you know, what you want for lunch. It's, uh, you know, every single detail of your, your, of your life appears to be some sort of minor decision. And in a way, the proliferation of these minor decisions and the constant pressure and stress of making those decisions means that it becomes very hard to tell or make a priority uh, between uh, different types of decisions. So suddenly, you know... Uh, <clears throat> should you keep dating this guy and should I stay in this country or should I move away? Should I take on this student debt? They get confused with like, should I buy these shoes? Should I subscribe to Netflix? Should I have another beer? I mean, they they all get kind of messed in together. And that's what I mean by perpetual crisis uh, as a distraction from long-term wealth redistribution because we know very well that, of course, the future at the moment is not a really kind of positive project. There is a kind of abrupt end to the possibility of the future and I think a lot of the work that I do really tries to examine that condition and tries to see how we might intervene in that condition. Uh, What is architecture? Well, architecture I think is an interesting word. You, you often hear it described as like master builder or maybe like master craftsman. And that comes from an understanding of architecture uh, as being made up of archi and techne. Techne is a word normally translated as craft or art. It's a Greek word. But actually, techne doesn't mean that. Techne means uh, to assemble. Uh, or to put together. So you see it in, for example, textile, which is the assembly or arrangement of fibers. You see it in tectonics, which is the kind of arrangement of elements uh, together. And you see it also in, uh, like, technology, which means the mode or means or, or instrumentality of assemblage. Of how, Basically, technology is how we make things. So architecture, in that sense, is really just the, an act of master assembly. And I think what's important about that is that in a kind of classical sense, That might have meant the arrangement of different column orders or different, uh, you know, historical elements to form a facade or to form a structure. Uh, In a contemporary sense, of course, we deal with both material and immaterial systems of assembly. And architects, therefore, I think are at a really kind of unique uh, position in terms of how they begin to think about the interrelationship of non-physical or immaterial systems and how they translate into physical systems. Um, uh, Maybe one other thing I would say, which is not so much about architecture, but about the architect, uh, something that strikes me a lot about architects is they're kind of intrinsically optimistic people because if you work as an architect, and many of you may, uh, you will know that you know clients will come to you and say, we have a like, tiny site and we have no money and there are many restrictions and problems on this site and we're also in the process of going through a divorce. And you're just like don't worry, we're going to do the best building you've ever seen. You know, you have to always turn it into a positive proposition. And, and in fact, that's really what architecture is. It's, it's the project. Uh, and the project is a positive vision for what can be done and what you can do in that situation. So I like also the idea of architecture and the architect uh, as a, a figure who is always looking to, to make a kind of positive. We, we're not critics. We're not trying to deconstruct the world. We're also trying to make a positive contribution to it. Uh, The the next idea is uh, the idea of domestication is domination. There has been in recent years a lot of discussion about the oikos. I don't know if you've heard these rumors going around, but the oikos is kind of a Greek idea. Uh, It means uh, house in some senses, Um, and it gives us the root of the word uh, ecology and also economics. Um, These are kind of considered to be rooted in household management. Um, But the Oikos doesn't really mean that, uh, and I'm not going to go into why... Or will I? Yeah, yeah all right. Uh, the, so uh, the problem with oikos is it actually means like clan or uh, kind of private group or you know, large extended family. And in the Greek uh, model, they didn't have um, an idea of progress. So they thought that civilization was eternal. The human condition was eternal. They didn't think things got better as time went on, which is a very kind of recent invention. It's only a couple of hundred years old. Uh, before that, everyone thought that the world was static. Um, and they believed that there were two kind of forces that always competed in civilization. One was economics, which really meant private interest, uh, the interest of the clan. And the other was politics, uh, which is the interests of the citizens and the polis, which is the, the city-state. And so they believed that there were times when politics won, and that's when you know, you could the citizens governed. And there were times when economics won, and that's when private interest uh, and the clan interest uh, uh, you know, kind of one. And at those moments when one was flipping over to the other, you had the impossibility of of uh, civilization, and, and they called that civil war, and their word for that was stasis, uh, the impossibility of rule. Um, but actually, there's a kind of parallel history to the home, uh, which I find, in a way, kind of more interesting and often neglected, which is the root of the word domus, uh, the Latin word domus. And domus, um, domus basically means... Uh, a semi-autonomous or sovereign region or area um, ruled by a single man. And uh, we tend to think, the kind of patriarch, we tend to think of domestication as being a process which occurs to animals and which humans have kind of incorporated animals into our way of living. But actually, the first subjects of domestication were, of course, other humans, in which, I guess, some guy had to convince a bunch of other people that he was now going to be running the show. Uh, and so there 's a kind of intrinsic violence, if you want, in uh, in the structure of how domestic uh, households occur and of course, the other roots which come from Domus are domination um, and and so that 's a kind of idea to think about that the home is a kind of intrinsic li- uh, source of uh, violence and inequality between individuals who are forced into a, a structure that they might not really go into uh, or enjoy uh, c- categories of ownership they 're was a problem for medieval uh, monks. Basically, they're reading the Bible, and uh, you know, Jesus says, uh, give away everything you want, uh, Give it away immediately, and then he kind of follows up by being like, I'm very serious about this. This is not a kind of metaphor. I mean, literally, give away everything you own." And these medieval monks had a lot of difficulty. They were like, well, what does this mean? I mean, how are we to survive if we give away everything, and what really does that mean? Imply. So they created four categories of ownership, some which they thought were okay, Jesus wasn't really talking about those, and some which Jesus was talking about. And they, they gave them the following categories. One was, well, the first was use. Uh, use means uh, like this kind of glass of wine. In the process of trying to own it, in using it, I also exhaust it. So, you know, glass of water is a good example. You can't really own a glass of water because as you own it, you consume it. The second uh, category of ownership is called usufruct. Usufruct means uh, like the right of access. So for example, all the streets um, uh, in the city have a kind of usufruct where they technically belong to the state, but the state has granted all of us as citizens or residents or visitors the right to walk around in those streets. So we have a right of access to the streets and that's usufruct. Another example would be in Britain, If your window has direct sunlight for more than 50 years, you have something called ancient lights, and people paint underneath the window in large white letters ancient lights, and it means that no one can build anything that blocks out that light. Um, Not only does it lead to kind of strange facades with sort of ancient lights written all over them, but it also, in effect, you know, obviously you can't own the light, but what you do own is the right of access to the light. The third category of ownership is uh, possession. Possession. Philip Patek, the Swiss luxury watchmaker, their slogan is, you never really own a Patek Philippe; you just take care of it for the next generation. And you often hear this kind of idea of possession uh, from particularly aristocrats who say, well, you know, I'm not really the lord of the manor, I, I'm just taking care of it for the next generation, I'm a caretaker of this land. And that's a way of, in a sense, dissimulating the power and responsibility that they have but it's also in in a weird way you know a recognition of the fact that they own it now but you may not own it forever and therefore you have certain responsibilities for its preservation and the fourth category is dominion and dominion again tied to domus domestication domination dominion means the right to kill because another key component of the domus was that the patriarch could kill anyone within the household and it was not a crime. You could kill your wife, you could kill your uh, children or your slaves. You know, if it was your wife or your kids, people might look at you maybe weirdly, but uh, slaves were not recognized as people. So they, they didn't have, they didn't have a, a legal structure of the individual in Rome as they do now. So you could kill them, that was fine. Hello. <laughs> um, it would be fair to say that if I really owned for example, a painting. Let's say I owned an Andy Warhol painting. If I really owned it, I can destroy it. I have the right to kill it. That's what total ownership meant. And the monks were like, yeah, you've got to stay, stay clear of that one. The free plan equals free society. Well... Uh, I guess you could say that this was an ambition of the modernists. They they thought that you took out the walls between the living and the kitchen and the dining room, you create an open plan, and now you create the possibility for society to reinvent itself. Well, I think we need to be more sophisticated about that. I also think we need to move away from modernism. Uh, there is a model uh, called intersectional uh, feminism, which basically suggests that uh, you know uh, it is modernity for everyone who's not um, me, everyone who's not the white, heterosexual male. Uh, And I I like that idea. I think that, uh, obviously, we should expand um, modernity and the the values of modernity and universalism beyond a single subjectivity which dominated the 20th century. Uh, I'm not crazy about that subjectivity at all. But, in a sense, the free plan equaling free society, what do we mean by the free plan? I can't remember if I included... Yeah, here we go. Function is irrational. You have uh, a difficulty with functionalism, which is that functionalism embodies but also crystallizes and makes impossible any future changes in architecture. What does that mean? Well, in my past flat, I had a, a galley kitchen, and it was optimized for a, a housewife during the day to be at home uh, making a meal Uh, for her family and everything was arranged around that individual. If you bring a group of Italians into that flat, it's an absolute clusterfuck because they cook in a collective and collaborative way. And there is simply not enough space to operate. So what appears to be a kind of totally rational, uh, 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 realization of that use in fact prohibits or makes impossible any future change in the space so as you'll see from some of the projects I'm going to show you I have uh, an interest in long-term design uh, in design that lasts many many decades and if you imagine the way that functions have changed and social attitudes have changed you know um, I got married three months ago uh, uh, and my wife and I we sleep in a, uh, a double bed Uh, 50 years ago, it would not have been that unusual for a young couple to have slept in two single beds. Uh, You know, that happened. Now, if I slept in two single beds with my wife, I think people would find that a bit creepy, or at least weird. Uh, But if you go back even further, 100 or 150 years, people were sleeping, you know, whole family was in a single bed. So, Around that single object, which appears to be a response to functional requirements of the human form, there are so many other power relations which are embedded in it. And that's the real difficulty with functionalism, which is it it both perfectly manifests a particular moment in time, but it makes it impossible for that space to adapt to the future. And I prefer uh, rationalism to functionalism. Uh, rationalism was basically an idea uh, that you would design around abstract relations and proportions so i often use for example uh, harmonic relations in my work which are based on music or you can take uh, their you know albertian palladian you google them you'll find them i just copy paste basically but the point of them is that they're not related to the human form and in a way you know, I think we intuitively understand the possibilities of something like industrial spaces, which are designed around the movements of machines rather than the movements of bodies. We understand them as intrinsically more free as spaces than uh, uh, functional spaces because uh, an industrial space or an ex-industrial space can be reinvented in many ways through time. Uh, it can It can be a, a home office, it can be a home, it can be a studio, it can be a cafe. It doesn't really matter because those dimensions are not contingent on the activities that are inside them. Form follows finance, I mean, as I mentioned before, uh, it really does. you have to I think from at least in my work, I always design backwards from the financial conditions that make something possible. But finance is also amoral. Uh, money has no desire it 's like water going down a hill. it just follows the shortest path. So the question then is if you have grand social ambitions, if you want to pursue the types of values that I mention, how How do you... Who's going to pay for this? How are you going to financially justify this? And I think, therefore, you know, in as much as I have huge admiration for the many generations of utopian architects that came before us, uh, a lot of the time, they were either contingent on a particular form of funding, like the welfare state, or they had no idea of how they were going to manifest these things, in which case, it's kind of... It's not a waste of time. I would never discourage someone from that, but its practical application becomes limited... Capitalist event horizon. I spoke about uh, time uh, as being kind of a a strong instrument in the way in which I design. Every part of this kind of hopelessness of the future is in part to do with the fact that um, most of our financial relationships and other relationships are already on someone else's balance sheet. We have already been accounted for. And the future, if you want, in terms of how global markets uh, operate, Uh, you know, different types of markets have different types of horizons. So, obviously, day traders operate at the scale of 24 hours. Currency exchange traders tend to operate in, say, the week-long period, many of them. Uh, You know, you you then have someone like a pension fund who thinks in terms of 30 or 40 years. uh, And that's pretty much as far as you go. Maybe some government bonds go up to, like, 50, 60 years. But basically, that's the limit of where capitalism is prepared to invest on the whole. You very rarely see uh, financial projects that stretch to, say, a thousand years um, because it becomes too risky, basically. They don't know how to calculate risk or manage risk at that uh, distance from from the present. So, in a sense, if you want to invent the future, my argument would be that you have to somehow pitch your project uh, beyond the event horizon of capitalism, make it so that it's invisible, it's outside the visibility of what capitalism thinks is going on, especially if you want to pursue, I would um, not use the title, let's say, socialist uh, projects, but projects which have different ideas uh, 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 or different values which are not intrinsically capitalist. Um, And and therefore, of course, what goes along with that is the luxury of time. I think only wealthy people now have the luxury of governing their own time. For the rest of us, we're pretty much forced into uh, models of behavior and uh, systems that, uh, you know expropriate our time from us Uh, sharing is caring Uh, the sharing economy is very big I'm sure a lot of you will have designed co-housing projects think carefully about what you're doing with that because in a way the the way I would categorize that trend is um, at least from my own experience after 2011 after the Occupy movement that that year that Occupy movement was a response to the fact that everyone had a great hope after the financial crisis that Obama would be elected and that the world order would change. And when the bailouts began to roll out and people became disillusioned, they began to kick up a fuss. And that limited fuss was the Occupy movement. The failure of the Occupy movement leaves us in a difficult position in which people intrinsically understand that there must be both financially, morally, even ecologically, uh, desire to do more with less, to share more, to find a way which is not always generate, you know, driven by profit, to find a form of life which rejects some of these uh, operations. And what we end up seeing is those values or those desires actually being used against us. So the sharing economy is a perfect example of that. Um, the sharing economy has nothing to do with sharing. It's mainly to do with the extraction of latent value from existing networks. So it used to be that you sold a car, And you don't care what they do with the car. That's no longer your economic problem as the car manufacturer. But now, maybe we can actually extract more value out of the car once we've sold the car. And how do we do that? Well, we mobilize the car into a network. Um, And and that's true, I think, for many things. But in essence, you know, Airbnb and, and Uber and these other models, they take that surplus value which is existing in that network and they centralize it in a single corporation. I'd be very interested to see if something like Airbnb could exist if the profits from Airbnb were proportionally distributed to those people who supplied housing in the network and those who use the network. So like, I guess, a kind of socialist Airbnb. Uh, The corporate aesthetic. Uh, It's very hard to know what to design. What should architecture look like? And particularly if you're beginning to talk about ideas which are maybe a little bit unusual, what, um, what aesthetic should you choose? Well, for me, There were, like, two uh, types of communists just after the revolution in 1917, the, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. And the Bolsheviks thought that everyone should be proletariat, everyone should be working class. And the Mensheviks thought that everyone should be middle class and that we should automate everything in the factory and no one should work anymore and everyone should have a life of leisure. Well... Again, I don't really approve of labels, but I'm definitely down with everyone being middle class. Because for those of you who may be middle class, it's definitely better than, uh, let's say, not having the power. uh, And and certainly, I think, uh, bourgeois uh, lifestyle in which you do no work and are paid by someone else's labor. Imagine if everyone lived that way. It's kind of utopian. The corporate aesthetic, therefore, is an attempt to appropriate uh, or uh, redeploy uh, the aesthetic of particularly mid-century modernism, but modernism in, in general, in, uh, in a radically different way. And I'll say maybe more about that later. I want to, first of all, show you a series that I've been working on for a number of years. It's a 10-year series. It actually began in 2012, although the first project wasn't completed till 2013. I'll run through them. Do you think it's possible to turn off the lights at the front so we can see the screen a little bit more? Uh... Great. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. Oh. Uh, yeah, that's fine. I would also be happy in the dark, but... Uh... Anyway, just listen to my soothing voice. You're walking along a long beach. Um, derivative architecture. This, I guess, you know, I, I was part of the Occupy movement, and at the same time I was doing a master's in philosophy in the morality of neoliberal economic theory, which is more interesting than it sounds. But in, in effect, what I came out of that was uh, wanting to deal with the subjectivity of the precariously employed individual, the person who feels... Uh, a a metropolitan who feels a kind of disenfranchisement from their environment, who are trapped in jobs that are unfulfilling, with relationships that are half-hearted and fleeting, and whose endemic anxieties are anaesthetized by a kind of cornucopia of consumption. And this, in effect, is what this figure is, uh, uh, surrounded by the objects of their desire, which they're unable to realize. Um, uh, the the 2011 August riots in Britain were exactly that. You cannot give a population decades of erotic desire for new trainers without giving them the financial ladder in order to acquire those trainers because as soon as the rules of society appear to be off, they will steal the trainers. It's like that simple. And in that sense, I would say that stealing the trainers, uh, robbing sports stores is a kind of political protest. Uh, Anyway... So the question was, you know, how, in a sense, could we provide housing for very low cost? How could, we, how could we achieve the kind of utopian goal? How could we achieve low cost, high quality housing in the very center of London? That's the moral proposition. And then, because it is right that we do that, I believe. Uh, and, and how do we do that? Well, what I designed was not in the end of building, but a kind of financial algorithm, um, which was developed with uh, Halifax Group and also PricewaterhouseCooper, kind of manipulating their data. And trying to understand the factors which went into um, development of properties. And there was one kind of, there are many interesting models of of debt, uh, and the rules are basically infinite. You can make them up as you go along. But one that I find very useful is in Japan, they used to have 90 year mortgages. Uh, 90 year mortgages do something kind of weird. First of all, the mortgage is attached to the house, not the individual, so you have no credit checks when you, you just start paying rent basically, you move in. Uh, for the bank that lends you the money, they get a lot of interest because the loan is 90 years long rather than 20 or 30 years long. For the person who is in the house, they effectively get very low-cost rent because if you divide the cost of the house over 90 years rather than over 20 or 30, of course, that annual payment comes down a lot. And the third thing that happens is the home itself becomes extremely sustainable or must be sustainable because... uh, Any damage or maintenance costs to the home come out of the profit of all those involved. So what you get is high-quality, low-cost housing, uh, which is a high return for the investor. And therefore, you know, you're trying to satisfy these incentives on all sides. And that's effectively what this project was. Uh, It basically optimized uh, through a bond, which is like a kind of uh, crowdsourced mortgage, I guess you could call um in order to take this plot of land find what its underlying value was find how to optimize that and the volume itself of the building the length of time that you borrow the money and the rate of return uh allows you to achieve uh 46% of the market rate which uh it may not sound i don't know if this how this compares to to an australian context but uh i guess $1600 for 72 square meter no a bit more than that uh, almost $2,000 per month for a 72 square meter apartment in London would be considered very inexpensive. Uh, It's not ideal, of course we can go lower, but that was really the optimum rate you could achieve on this site. And then the building was plated in gold. This is what I mean by form follows finance. But the gold is not like, I mean, yeah, sure, it'd be great because uh, 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 Chinese uh, and Gulf and uh, Russian investors who are currently overinflating the London markets, I think would be attracted by the gold. But it's also helpful because um, there's a building in Canada, the Royal Bank of Canada in Montreal, which is plated in gold. it has a number of really valuable qualities. One is, it doesn't corrode. It's probably the most ecological thing you could put on a building. It, it's a noble metal. It doesn't suffer from pollution or damage of any kind. The other thing is, and, and this is what I found from the Royal Bank of Canada in Montreal, when they put the gold on the facade in the late 1960s, I think it was worth something like $20 million. And by the time the oil crash came in '74, the oil crisis, it had already gone up to like $100 million. And suddenly everyone was saying like... the value of the building now as a result of the gold facade is actually many times what we spent on it in the first place. And that I found kind of interesting, because if you plate this uh, facade with gold uh, in 2013, by 2063, when you finish paying off the loan, it's gone up by almost 4,000% in value. And you can use that extra money as a, as a way to uh, finance uh, social programs like free creche, uh, free supermarket for the residents, and, and other kind of amenities. Uh, The second project in the series uh, was uh, Default Gray. The proposition of Default Gray is, for those of you, and I apologize to those of you from the Melbourne School of Design, you'll have heard me describe these without seeing the images uh, when I spoke last night. Default Gray is based on the idea that in 3D modeling programs, all material by default is gray. And you apply to the outside a kind of texture. It could be fire, grass, water, metal, doesn't matter. And... It looked, it's the appearance of diversity, of materiality, but in fact, it's all unified by a single condition. Um, and that, to me, was kind of interesting because increasingly we talk about kind of splintering uh, subjectivities uh, of increasing spe- spe- specificity, uh, but we less and less talk about the basic conditions of society which bond us together. So I heard two... Uh, goth, well, to, like Topshop goth girls on a bus in London, and they were arguing about the fact that they were not the same type of goth, and they had irreconcilable differences about what it meant to be a goth. Uh, I think one of them was wearing a Ramones T-shirt, and uh, which also was kind of confusing to me, but. Um, uh, but but but, but basically, you have this kind of infinite difference, this politics of infinite difference, whereas, in fact, they were united by their top shop, they were united by i 'm sure their amazon uh accounts by spotify by Uh, Facebook, by Instagram, by the terms and conditions of their bank accounts, by the rules of their citizenship and the territory in which they habit. And in fact, these kind of common uh, rules and these common conditions, uh, you know maybe as they get older, the terms and conditions of their mortgage, you're basically all stuck in the same subjectivity. And you can talk about how many differences there are between you. Uh, But in the end, I, I really wanted to kind of press some of these commonalities rather than focus on the the difference is so there's no form that's expressed in the in the facade of the building. It's completely impossible to determine uh, what it, I, I saw this bumper sticker once in America uh, in New Hampshire, whose uh, motto on their number plates is "Live Free or Die," and the bumper sticker said, "Dance like no one is watching." And I thought, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll design this building so that you cannot see what the people are doing, so that they can have some freedom to reinvent their subjectivity from without the scrutiny of society. And uh, it's a kind of modular design. Um, half the floor plate are these small apartments. Half is a kind of common room. They're organized into stacks of two. I don't remember if I included a plan. No, I didn't. But in any case, the idea is that uh, you can increase these to combine them, but there will always be a private space for each individual, so the density of the floor plate is fixed. You never have more people by expanding it. You have 15 people in a single, let's call it apartment, and the other half of that floor plate is this common room, which is up to those 15 people to decide uh, how they would like to, what the rules of that space will be, how they will live together and and manage that space. And actually it came out as a result of studying uh, with Diploma 14 at the Architectural Association with uh, two tutors, Maria Giudici and Pier Vittorio O'Reilly, with Kate Finning, who is here, this evening and as a result of being pressurized in a tiny studio of 15 people for one year, I was like, you know, obviously the rules of how that space will be managed begin to emerge. Um, But this was also kind of addressing the fact that in this part of London, there were a lot of uh, primarily immigrant families, uh, predominantly from the Middle East and uh, East Africa, whose family structures really required much more than the standard two-bedroom social housing that was available. So this also allows for kind of modular expansion, which one could imagine 15 members of the same family occupying the entire apartment or three, four, five-bedroom apartments as you continue to expand it. The next project was Empire Hotel. Um, Empire Hotel, you know, it seems kind of, like, unfair that uh, the, the neoliberal elite get to remove themselves from paying tax, but for the rest of us, we don't. And particularly if you're creative, this seemed to me kind of rude. So the idea for Empire Hotel is that you build a kind of network of hotel chains. Imagine it like a kind of creative Hilton chain, I guess. Uh, and you pay a fixed fee per year, um, and that gives you the right to stay in one room in or one bedroom in any of the hotel chains around the world uh, for one, you know, every night of the year. Uh, and that price is basically a product of what you might call um, – but you cannot spend more than three months of the year in one country – and uh, the, the annual membership price is basically a product of what you would call geographical arbitrage because the cost of maintaining this building in Mexico City is a lot less than in London. And the more diverse you are in your geographical placement, the lower that price comes so that actually what you get is a mean price for living on the, on the planet. You know, for this level standard of living, which is universal uh, in this system, you get a kind of average of the global property markets. Um, But you could also trade your labor, trade your creative labor. So you could do a number of hours per month in exchange for your rent and so on and so forth. Uh, The other significance of that is is that because no one spends more than three months in one country, you stop being a resident of of any country. You stop paying income tax. You withdraw yourself from the state. You also stop voting. It gives a certain equality to, uh, let's say, the difficulty that people from countries where, the where uh, say, Western Europe does not allow you easy visa access in order to work there. That no longer becomes a problem, really. So the free flow of people within this system becomes much easier. And, of course, it's a global community. Everywhere you go, uh, you, there will always be people who are united in your system. And the idea is uh, th- this actually I'll mention just very quickly. This interior image is what I was talking about with the corporate aesthetic. I was very much interested in surveying English people to find out what they thought luxury was. So I designed a room that effectively looked like a prison, and then I continued to add elements until it stopped being a prison. It's kind of Donald Judd trick, right? It's like, is it like... Shit, or is it really high art i can 't work it out, and then your mind like alternates between the two it 's like one of those magic eyes where you 're like oh it 's amazing, no wait no it 's really banal anyway, started out with a prison, continued to add elements until it reached a kind of moment where everyone agreed it was luxurious and it 's really interesting what those elements are. One is dark wood, English people love dark wood, they also love just like not too much gold that 's tacky, but just a, just a touch of brass, just a little bit of brass. But the most interesting element was no one agreed until there was uh, the Persian rug. And that says to me, you know, the Persian rug with all of its kind of histories of colonialism, of empire, of uh, exoticism, that is the single sign of the bourgeoisie. Uh, the idea was that they're modular, so you kind of open these panels and you can combine your studio with adjacent people so you can book in several months in advance to go and stay with your friends and open it up and have great parties, close it down during the day, do your work. It's kind of live workspace. Uh, it has, as I said, no connection to the city whatsoever. In order to enter the building, you descend a ramp. It's really cut off in every literal way from the city. Uh, the fourth project was... Uh, uh, called Common Stock, which was done for the Venice Architecture Biennial uh, last year. I curated the British Pavilion there with a show called Home Economics, and this was one of the projects that was included in that show. It's basically the same as the ingot, but at Canary Wharf, which is, I guess, you would call here like the CBD. It's kind of um, just outside the center of the city, it's where all the finance goes on. Uh, and, but in that, I really wanted to push more this idea of kind of destroying function. How could we design a functionless space? And more than that, how could we convince people that sharing is not always a compromise? Sharing can also be a form of luxury because sometimes if you're prepared to share, you can get more than you would have had if you were by yourself. And, of course, the English, they love this idea of everyone having their own thing. They don't really like to share at all. So it might sound like a banal proposition, but in an English context, you're fighting an uphill battle. And, of course, the traditional structure for an apartment block, as you will know, is a core with a corridor and all the apartments that come off it on the floor plate. And so this basically atomizes that space and begins to imagine, if we break that down, how we might be able to reuse it in different ways. And in, because of the size of this building and because of the nature of its structure, basically it's four blades uh, of concrete... Uh, with the core elements that come off them and the rest of the structure is a steel cantilevered uh, plate deck which goes between those two cores um, and what you end up achieving, so we work with Arup on this uh, what you end up achieving is a 18 uh, to 22% uh, floor plate saving and with a bit of special source due to our financial algorithms, you end up being able to create this room on the right hand side on every single floor so this is basically like free space so then the question is, if you get this free space, what are you going to do with the free space? Uh, and there was really a kind of aggressive, let's say, attack on functionalism in which all the apartments are designed. Uh, the only two things that I really struggle with, and this comes up in the next project, are the bathroom and the kitchen. They're the two spaces of functional activity which are the hardest to destroy. But in effect, it's just two pieces of furniture, the daybed and the uh, what we call the garderobe. Um, the garderobe is a kind of completely transparent vitrine in which all of your objects, including a lot of your infrastructure, go. Garderobe uh, is an archaic English word, but in many European languages means wardrobe. But the difference is that a garderobe is like something you can lock to keep your things safe. So there's a kind of interesting play on transparency and keeping things safe. But part of this is that the reason that mops are so shit, I mean, they, they never work properly and they fall apart very rapidly and they're very poorly designed is because we never look at them. Um, so this forces all of your domestic objects into a flat relationship with each other. It destroys the hierarchy. Suddenly your grandmother's ashes last night's Chinese takeaway and, you know, your collection of books and your vacuum cleaner and your, uh, you know, fabric softener. They're all now in a single hierarchy, which hopefully will encourage you to have less shit. And the stuff that you do have might be nicer. Anyway, that common room though becomes a kind of interesting space, right? And this is what it looked like when we built it in, in Venice. Um, Because this is a kind of example of the sharing economy that I want to promote. All of these objects are shared in common between the residents of that floor. And of course, you know, well, uh, if you think about design through time, you know, something like a vacuum cleaner makes a lot of sense. You only really need it five, ten minutes a week. So I guess you can share it with your neighbors. That's fine. Maybe push chairs, strollers could be handy. Yes, maybe tools like drill or something. You don't use it that frequently. But how far will people go in terms of sharing objects? Uh, would they share clothes? Uh, would they, and if so, would they only share like tuxedo uh, and ball gown, or would they share socks and t-shirt? So we worked with the British designer J. W. Anderson to. Put together a uh, I wonder if I have another photo. A no. A uh gender neutral, age neutral wardrobe, which is what's in the in the right hand side there. And the deal with the day, day beds is uh, uh the the bed the bed has overtaken the sofa as the most used piece of furniture in the home for the first time since twenty 20- uh, first time ever since and this happened in 2014 in Britain and, and what this means is that the bed has become a place where we now eat, where we work, where we socialize either virtually or really uh, because in a way there's so many pressures now that the uh, bedroom in itself becomes a kind of micro apartment um, and therefore the bed becomes in effect also the sofa, right? In, in a kind of Marxist sense, you could say that the bed is now a space of production and reproduction um, <laughs> And so the idea of this was, you know, again this idea of if you're prepared to share and bring things together, can you have more? So the bed, this day bed, you know, it's a kind of modernist trope. Everyone does a day bed. This is my day bed. Uh, when it's by itself, it's designed for both sleep and for work. When you bring two together, you immediately create a relationship between each other. As soon as you bring three together, actually you get something which is quite different because this is based on a Roman triclinium. The Romans used to eat in a uh, like th- group of three tables or like sofas on this on their side, uh, which gives you also an idea of how much you know everything you take for granted is not the case uh, but in so in this case, you, you see the three grouped together there with the Uh, shelves all arranged on the inside that becomes actually kind of platform for sharing a meal and if you had four or five could become like a place for like swingers or orgies or you know could be or you know who knows I mean it, it doesn't really matter the point is that there's a gestalt to that because the more pieces of furniture you're prepared to bring into one space the more unpredictable and uncontrolled those relationships between individuals become Uh, The final project so far in this series is called Glass House, which was produced for the uh, Chicago Architecture Biennial, which opened a few weeks ago. And this is a a kind of co-housing building near um, King's Cross uh, Station in London, uh, or it's a project for that. And inside, it, you know, really try to, like, again, aggressively decompose these circulation spaces. There's another architecture firm in London called Hesselbrand who have a theory called the plan economy, which basically involves a kind of value engineering out all wasted space. And uh, I've been very influenced by some of their their ideas. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, what occurred in Common Stock, which was the removal of that corridor space, is now we're trying to really push that further. So... What I've always liked about high-rise is that every floor is a household. Uh, It has one point of access. Uh, You know, it can be considered a household. So this is for four individuals or couples um, to live on one floor plate. You can see that there's no circulation space. The lift enters out into this kind of loggia. There's a double facade. So there's an external louvered facade, which British people, they don't know what louvers are. Australians, you love louvers but uh, so that 's a lot of the time people are like, "What is that kind of blade of glass?" But you have this double facade which allows you then a kind of uh, mediation. Sometimes the distance between the the sliding doors and the glass uh, louvers is just the width of a walkway, and sometimes it expands out to be a kind of internal space and because london 's quite cold. It becomes very ambiguous whether it's indoors or outdoors. But in effect, there is no circulation space. All the spaces are used. They don't have no function. They just have different qualities. So one point's north, one point's south. Our hemispheres are reversed, so the south one is actually the nice one. The north one might be maybe more appropriate for work or reading. And the western one you know, is good for, like, uh, like uh, spritz and campari in the evening. Um, and, the, and you can see what I've tried to do with the kitchen and the, and the bathroom uh, by trying to atomize these spaces. And uh, the kitchen becomes still a room, uh, but in effect a lot less uh, of a kind of uh, functional imposition. It's quite hard to imagine what sort of... Well, anyway, you can see. But the, I still haven't really resolved the kitchen. But the but the bathroom I, was really a kind of an attempt here, which was basically to take the bathroom and, and instead go with pure function and say what are the actual physical movements of the body as they wash itself and perform its ablutions. And just draw a line around that and you get basically these forms which, which become these kind of sculptural glass objects uh, within the building uh, almost like kind of oversized uh, Alva Alto vases uh, in a kind of bottle green glass. And, and then the way we manifest that was as a kind of uh, maquette. Uh, it's about one and a half meters long which was then installed at the Chicago Architecture Biennial. Um, And, of course, all the walls are rendered transparent in order for you to be able to read the plan. That's what it looks like. Um, Yeah, did I include... Yeah, okay. I'll give you one more project, which... I've increasingly started working in the world of fashion. The reason for that is that I'm increasingly irritated by the world of institutions, my plan was basically to copy Mies van der Rohe. Mies van der Rohe worked for 10 years doing uh, commercial exhibitions for people like toilet manufacturers, doing installations. and That's how he made his bread and butter, and no one wanted him to build houses at all. Uh, but he used that uh, exhibition uh, forum as a way to experiment with new models of space and new types of architecture and new materiality. So I thought maybe a good way to approach these types of architectures I've presented to you, in terms of realizing them, would be to go through institutions. And I have found that to not be the case. In fact, I found institutions overwhelmingly to be rather difficult. This year we had a number of exhibitions cancelled, one at the AA uh, one with the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, one with the Design Museum, and this one was with the Tate Modern. And so I just wanted to tell you a little bit about this one because personally, it's one of my favorite that we've done, and sadly will be unrealized. Although maybe I will realize it in another context, and then because you know you just recycle these ideas, as I'm sure you know. Everyone wants something original, but when something good doesn't get uh, happen, it's you put it in the pile. So the idea for this was uh, that. Tate Modern came to us uh, in, I guess, June this year and said, we want to do an exhibition, and we have a problem, which is in the Tate Modern, the sixth floor, in the new extension, the sixth floor is a viewing gallery where everyone comes and has a great view over the city. The fourth floor is the permanent collection. Everyone loves that. But the fifth floor has got a narrow staircase. It's hard to get to. People don't know it's there, and no one ever goes there. So please make an exhibition which attracts people to the fifth floor. And I said, are there any other programmatic uh, directions, curatorial directions? They said, we would like it to be about the future of work. I said, okay. They said, have you heard of universal basic income? I said, yes. (laughs) Universal basic income, for those of you who are not aware, is a kind of um, an idea that since automation is accelerating, uh, it kind of proposes it like a luxury high-tech communism in which all production is automated and the state then just pays every individual a fixed sum Per month uh, from that production and uh, the Swiss recently had a vote on it and rejected it but there are a number of other people who have been voting recently on on ideas of universal basic income as a way of combating falling wages and wealth polarization basically so I said okay fine here's the idea at the moment uh, you have to pay as an individual to go to an exhibition at the Tate Modern This one is going to pay you. Everyone who comes to the exhibition will receive an artwork worth £100. But in order to claim your artwork, you must take a ticket and wait in line, uh, and your number will be called on a screen. And you don't know how long you're going to be there, 30, 40 minutes, you don't know. So you take your ticket, you wait there, you sit there. There's kind of objects arranged on this fifth floor, the entire fifth floor, which is about 1,400 square metres, they're all wrapped in this uh, red carpet, which I really want to do a project with this carpet because it's a manufacturer used for Expo installation. So it's designed for like tens of thousands of people to walk over. it. Super consistent in its color, almost hyper real in its color. Composition It's so constant. It's quite amazing. And so this is basically a series of plinths, I guess you could say, wrapped in this carpet. Some of them are soft. Some of them are hard. Some of them are tall enough to be a barrier that almost begin to enclose a space. And some of them are more uh, distributed and... And uh, in between them, you have also these kind of other carpets laid on top of them in beige with Arnie Jacobson lights that shine down onto reading material. The idea is, is that you take your ticket, you wait, you don't know what you do, you don't have anything to do, so you take a seat, you wait. Maybe you read one of the magazines. There's a kind of public program of people wandering in and around to talk to you about kind of issues around, uh, you know, unpaid labor, exploitation, the future of work, and so on. Uh, but actually what this does is it gives everyone the opportunity to be bourgeois because bourgeois literally means to make money by not working from the work of someone else and that's exactly what you've done because you get that artwork worth 100 pounds and the idea was to give away 1 million pounds worth of artwork over 8 days Tate Modern said love it, great, good concept Then they started talking to the other departments, and they came back. And the first ones were the acquisitions department, and they said, yeah, actually, uh, this is going to be problematic because the artist you've proposed, Anthony Gormley, you know, we've been negotiating with him for many years uh, on which one of his works we want to acquire, and you're just, like, throwing in this other artwork that we have no control over whatsoever, so we don't like it. And then the directors above that came back and said are you proposing to give away one million pounds worth of art or are you proposing to give away one million pounds worth of art? And I said, well, I think that's a very interesting institutional question because, uh, you know, if I say it's worth a hundred pounds, this artwork, you know, uh, I don't know, sell it on eBay, see what, ha- see what you get for it. But you're the central bank of art. So if you say it's worth a hundred pounds, it may indeed be worth hundred pounds. And they said, we find this very institutionally problematic, and more than that, they said, we feel this is a very impolite form of institutional critique, and I said, okay, fine, maybe we can change it and come up, and they said, we don't really feel that you're an appropriate person to work with, and as a result, they cancelled the entire exhibition, so, but, and that's why I don't really work with institutions anymore, um... And these are some of, I mean, this is the Leonardo DiCaprio one on the top left, which also got cancelled for reasons I won't go into, but which are in a way more banal. They weren't happy with this idea. Or maybe I'll mention it very briefly since I have just a couple of minutes left. Uh, The idea was we were approached by the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation to do an exhibition for an art auction. They have one annually in Saint-Tropez. It's a red carpet affair. Everyone looks very glamorous. They raise tens of millions. At this point, they've raised $100 million for uh, environmental preservation. They wanted to do one in New York this year, and they wanted it to be in aid of saving the sea or preservation of the sea. And uh, they approached us to do a kind of like um, very basic sort of Christie's type setup so that the art pieces could be hung and shown before they were auctioned. I honestly have no idea why they approached us. But uh, we said to them, okay, well, actually, we want to do a couple of things. The first is we want to make this art uh, visible to the public. So it should be a public exhibition rather than just a kind of closed thing. Second thing is uh, you should have a public program of people talking about the issues that you're interested in Uh, And that should also be part of it. And the third thing is we then worked with a company called Parley for the Sea to uh, develop this kind of translucent uh, uh, perspex, or it's a kind of polycarbonate. Uh, Parley for the Sea take plastic out of the sea and turn it into things like Adidas shoes. Um, So we developed this kind of material out of that. And uh, the idea was that at the conclusion of this uh, auction, we would then donate (coughs) this material to a, uh, a a charitable housing association in the Midwest of the US uh, who mainly focus on constructing homes for very poor families. And and therefore, this material itself would also then be reused in housing projects. And that all worked out fine, but then they wanted to change it from the sea to the jungle and then that didn't really work out. Can we still go with this? No. I mean, I said, no, I don't think we need, we need to do a new one. It, you can do this if you want, but it doesn't really make much sense now. And then they were like a bit indecision, and then it ended up not happening, and maybe we'll try again next year. But anyway, so we do these exhibitions. This is another one, Three Found Models. I already showed you the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. We do other exhibitions We do many publications at The Real Foundation, uh, catalogues, books of varying kinds. We publish a quarterly magazine called The Real Review, which is a contemporary culture magazine rooted in ideas of material feminism. Uh, Material feminism is a way of analyzing space in order to ascertain power relations. So, you know, the head of the table is both metaphorically and literally the head of the table. The patriarch sits there. If you have a circular dining room table, it creates equality in the family. I won't go into more detail about that. You've got Rem down there. The magazine kind of folds out. There's a sp- I won't go into the design of the magazine, although I'm very proud of it, but this was a review of Rem in which Rem is always watching you. No matter how you fold the magazine, you always are watched by Rem, which I think, for those of you who have been involved in the M Pavilion, he has that kind of haunting presence. Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning all of these is because I wanted to come back to f- the final form of design, which I think is important. Uh, which is, of course, in as much as I'm trying to propose to you maybe different ways or at least personal ways of thinking about the design of architecture and the design of buildings, You know, also the architect themselves as a social figure is a subject of design, and we are, as designers, uniquely able to design who that figure is. And as part of that, we also have to think about the design of architectural firms as structures. I mean, basically, we inherit as I'm sure you know, even if you've worked in practice and then start your own firm, you pretty much just use the same folder structure as you used in your last office. There's no moment at which you actually design file systems, uh, let alone design corporate structures or company structures. So the real foundation is a limited company. We don't have, uh, uh, you know, you don't have so many variants in in the UK as you do in other uh, countries in terms of being a specific not-for-profit company. So we're a limited company. But being a foundation means that we have articles of association which govern how we operate. We have a board of advisors who consult on our projects and who can veto projects. And who also set other things like rates of pay and so on. Um, and most of all, you know, the, these, these are our kind of uh, goals. These are our mi- part of our mission statement. Um, and what that means is that, you know, in order to achieve some of the projects that I mentioned, uh, you know, it's going to require power and money. How do you make sure that that doesn't corrupt you and divert you from your goal? Well, this keeps you honest because I don't trust myself and I don't trust anyone else when it comes to those things. Uh, It would also mean that I could in principle retire or leave this foundation It would continue to operate in the same way. And finally, it allows us in a way, it's kind of inversion, actually it came out of some work I did with OMA, it's an inversion of the OMA AMO model. OMA is the architecture firm which has within it a research body that conducts other types of work. We are, in effect, a cultural institute which has embedded within it an architectural practice. And for the minute, we mainly have been focusing on magazines, books, publications, and so on, and exhibitions, increasingly more expensive and larger-scale exhibitions uh, for maybe more uh, you know, high-profile clients, um, even small structures, small buildings, And we are slowly moving towards realizing the the types of projects that I showed you. And that's really the kind of sole ambition of real foundation as it exists. And I guess I would conclude there by saying, at least for me personally, that's what it means to live today. Thank you very much. I, I, yeah, I believe we have time for questions. Yeah, that would be cool. Does Does anyone have any questions? Yes, I, I can have that effect on audiences sometimes. Yeah. Oh, I think there's a roving mic. Hello? Maybe he's turning it up. Maybe, oh, it's working now. Um, hello, thank you for the presentation, Jack. Um, I guess just towards the end, you said, I, I'm not very convinced, maybe I, I doubt myself, mm-hmm. right? Which is very good. Um, and so the question is, I guess you're trying to convince people. And I'm not sure that you're trying to, you're not very convinced by yourself. And so who are you convinced by? Carl Carl Sagan, who was a 1970s uh, American astronomer who opened to the American public the wonders of the universe for the first time in many ways, those who have perhaps been sleeping through the moon landing, Um, he said you must approach all endeavors with skepticism and imagination. It's when you start drinking your own Kool-Aid that you really run into problems because... uh, Sorry, what I mean by that is when you really buy into your own ideology and you think that you have a dogmatic assertion of truth, that you know you know what it means to live today, you know the truth, and you are pursuing the one goal, you're totally fucked. You are completely disappeared off the planet at that point. So in order to maintain that connection with reality, you cannot help but wake up and... And also, I think it's a natural human condition. We oscillate between... I mean, certainly I do. I oscillate between uh, a number of extremes, such as, man, this is the most awesome thing I've ever designed, and then, oh, my God, this is total shit, I'm so embarrassed of this, often in a kind of, like, four-second cycle. Um, But, of course, architecture is a kind of stabilizing process which allows you to move forward from that because what the project does is it evens out, I think, two things. One is continue to produce a lot because, the you know... If you imagine the writer who's trying to write the great American novel, you know, it's got to be pretty good if you're only going to write one novel. But if you're a short story writer who's writing a lot, you know, some of them will be better than others, and you can experiment with a lot of different things, and, and you know, overall you might achieve a, a collection of good works, right? So I'm not, in a sense, precious about making experiments, and and I'm not afraid to fail in them because I also know that some of the issues I've been talking to you about tonight are quite complex and require a lot of specialized knowledge to understand, let alone to try and communicate or turn into built form um, It will be it, it It is in the end not for me to judge my own work at all. you know you just have to try and do the best that you can and just see what you can achieve and I think therefore doubting is is really integral to that growth process. Thank you. Hello, can you hear me? What um, what's other conditions that you need to like have one of these experiments take root, you know? Like what for this prototype to become a model that could be replicated? So the main barrier to long-time design with long periods of time uh, is really banal. It's basically product warranties. So no financial institution will lend you money for 100 years. Not because they think society's going to fall apart, but because they think your building's going to fall apart. Uh, You know, you can... I don't know what it's like in Australia. In Britain, there are some products that... Actually, I don't even know if they extend up to 60 years. I think there are some facades you can get for 60 years, proprietary facade systems. Um, But the majority of product warranties are in the kind of like 15 to 25, maybe 30-year market. And... um, and especially that's true when it comes to proprietary systems. By, by that I mean, uh, for example, um, uh, in Australia you're very fond of uh, uh, passive hot water systems where the pipe runs through the roof underneath the color bond and it heats up the water so you spend less energy heating the water. You know that is a proprietary system because there's the pipes, there's got to go in a certain type of insulation, there's the pump, there's the tank. They're all different elements which come together in a single system. So what we're working on at the moment is... Uh, uh, research into what you might call well what we call the 100 year ha- home or a house for 100 years which is basically trying to create a product warranted or guaranteed proprietary system that can be guaranteed for 100 years and in insurance terms and legal terms it's a total fucking headache and more than that it requires many different uh, ways of thinking so you have to think in kind of technical terms about a building which is able to renew itself in periodic time so you know, you repaint the walls every five years. You redo the electrics every thirty years. Uh, you know, if we think about what services have been invented in the last hundred years, we need to leave. We estimate about twenty-five to thirty percent more in the core because there are new technologies that haven't been invented yet that we don't know about that will need to go in there. Um, so, you know, nothing can ever be glued. It all needs to be screwed together. All the materials you use have an imbe- embodied energy that you need to think about. So, there's kind of technical questions around that. Then, the other half is, of course, you know, as I mentioned before, changes in social models that occur over a century. Um, family structures, you know, a hundred years ago, it was illegal to be gay. Aboriginals weren't people. Uh, I mean, you know, it was a kind of like barbaric reality. We, uh, for sure, in a hundred years, we'll look back on this moment as an equal moment of barbarity in different ways. Uh, you know, I would point to our ecological catastrophes that are impending as evidence of that. But uh, so that's, that's the main challenge, which is basically creating a product that can be bought and implemented that will last 100 years. Uh, so that's, that's what we're working on. Because um, the financial systems are actually all there. They'd be very happy to do it, but they just don't trust you to build a product that will last that long. Um, Thank you for the talk. Uh, It occurs to me that a few of the models, uh, when you mentioned the financial, the first project that is, in essence, was a financial model, and the hotel project as well, um, in which people move around the world and live in a different room, these aren't really directly tied to architecture. I wonder if your foundation has um, explored working into different financial models or business models that go outside of that? Yes, we do. And also legal models as well. So a good example of a project I can give there is we were approached earlier this year by an Italian professor of economics at the LSE who wanted us to do an apartment conversion. And he said, I would love you to do this, but we, I actually have no money. So uh, we said, okay, no problem. What we're going to do is create an addendum, a, a schedule, which attaches to the standard architect's contract of." Uh, Produced by the RIBA, which is like the AIA, and uh, basically uh, the resale of your home, we will take two and a half, two and a half percent of that value. So we were turning the fact that we couldn't get paid now. You know, hopefully, I mean, fingers crossed. In uh, the British property market, will continue to go up indefinitely. This was, of course, before Brexit, which in the end is what killed this project. But uh, hopefully, the the London property market will keep going up. So if he doesn't resell the apartment for five or ten years, that 2.5% will actually just get bigger as time goes on. So in effect, what you've designed there is a legal instrument. I mean, that's the main subject of, of design. A legal instrument which changes your relationship with the client, which allows you then to make decisions together which are actually not about client architect. He's like, I want to do marble. I said, you can't afford marble, let's do linoleum. And he really couldn't argue with that, whereas in a way normally a client would kind of press the point because we were effectively both investors in the scheme. And then finally, having created that standardized schedule, which uh, can be attached to a standard contract, as long as that standard contract is in use, which typically is a four- to six-year period in the U.K., you couldn't basically give that to other architects and say this is also something you can offer your clients as a way of financing your project. If they don't have enough money to pay you well... Offer them like a, an equity share, and so in in the end, we didn't do any architectural design on that project. We didn't even you know begin to do a, an apartment study. We basically just designed a financial and legal instrument. So yeah, and and but I would say, I mean, that's what I was trying to say about architecture being material and immaterial. It's like it's a spatial way of thinking, but also it's the arrangement of different. In a sense, for me, that's like the design of differing systems, which could have. It could have been the same logic applied to building technologies or it could also be applied to other business models as well. But in a sense, our uh, ambitions keep us rather constrained in terms of how far into space we go with those. But it's, it's a model of thinking, I guess. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, and I would also say that sometimes the design of the built environment is actually designing the unbuilt environment and, and allowing you know, it to be a product of that. Maybe one other thing I'll add actually is one of the other barriers – to realizing these is... Well, one of the key barriers to realizing some of the taller towers is that in Britain, you cannot... We don't have strata title. You cannot get a mortgage on a property that's more than five stories in the air um, or in a building that's more than five stories tall, basically. So uh, the only people who live in high-rise are people who can buy it outright, so the very wealthy, so luxury flats, or ex-social housing. So as a result, the British have no experience of living in domestic conditions, in condominiums or high-rise towers. And therefore, they have no cultural uh, acceptance of that. They find it an abhorrent model. So you are also, in a sense, fight... You know, that's a good example of when a financial structure forces a complete... You know, an entire typology of housing is eliminated in the British context because of the terms and conditions of a mortgage contract. So, you know, last year we designed a mortgage with the Royal Bank of Scotland, which will launch in 2019... And we just designed a mortgage around being able to facilitate new types of building that previously would be banned under that model. And in the end, you're not designing a house. You're just designing the possibility for architects to work within a future framework. Uh, And and I also consider that architecture. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, Thanks. It occurred to me just throughout your talk that potentially if you sort of looked across Melbourne or London or any city that, that like the general scheme is capitalism or something like that but that within say for example within your buildings you're actually um, executing a different ideology and that maybe across cities there are actually all these unique different ideologies that are sort of operating possibly like when governments do buildings typically it's a very social agenda but when um, private people do skyscrapers in Melbourne it's a pretty capitalist agenda. So it seems to me that, at the end of the day, could it actually really just be what, like, what your client wants it sort of determines the ideology that you're operating within? Partly, you are reliant on, in effect, the charity of the client or the civic-mindedness of the client. But actually, no, I mean, they're all unified under a capitalist structure because even a public building has to follow the same logic of procurement costs that a, that a private building does. It's just being financed normally by cheaper debt. So uh, all revenues that come from other places, you know, the the state has the ability to leverage taxes. They use those taxes to do other things. One of them is build buildings or uh, they go and borrow money on the international markets. And because they're a city, it seems like a pretty safe bet. So they get, uh, you know, 1%, 2% interest rate. So they can then afford to do more because they're borrowing the money cheaper. <coughs> I'm allergic to plane trees (coughs) Um, they're all united under a capitalist structure this is what happened to our prime minister actually I don't know if you saw thank you that's very kind of you (coughs) Uh, she had a terrible time with a speech she gave very recently Mm. Plus, all the letters fell off behind her. I don't know if you saw this. Yeah, <clears throat> um, yeah they're all united by a single u- a capitalist structure. But what I'm trying to do here is uh, there was a group of um, Marxists in the 1960s in Italy called the Autonomia, or Autonomist Movement. And their slogan was against from within. And they believed that if you wanted to create, you know, traditional communism and socialism, well, not so much socialism, which it tends to be less utopian, but communism says uh capitalism is going to wear itself out and when it it fails communism will rise but it doesn't i mean it's amazing how far capitalism can go and still function it's like running on fumes it's like pushing on the empty and it's really amazing uh it keeps changing the rules in order to allow itself to survive but uh they believe that if you wanted to make change you you didn't wait for a glorious revolution you had to Create progressive or incremental change from within existing institutions, within society. So I, I believe that very much. I'm looking for basically spaces within the logic of existing financial and other models, planning models, uh, you know, construction technologies, and trying to find within those a space for something that can be other. Because when you have a building which operates on a hundred-year cycle, it creates all sorts of weird conditions. The first is: this was another barrier as to why Price Waterhouse Cooper didn't want to invest. They said, a developer normally takes a 20% profit on a building, so you're borrowing the money for the cost of the building, but as soon as it's completed, it's now worth 120% of the money you've borrowed. What happens to that 20% profit that you've just created, that value that you've created by building that building? Your loan is just paying off the construction value. Who earns who that profit? What do you do with that profit? I said you don't do anything with the profit. You throw the profit away. They said, that seems anti-capitalist. I said, yes. They said, but we're also concerned that if you have such a long-term product, how do you ever buy or sell the building? I said, the building effectively exits the property market because it becomes immune to the process of boom and bust because the the market cycle has absolutely nothing to do with a fixed interest payment. So you have taken that property out of the capitalist property market. It can't be bought or sold. And in effect, it has a market value of zero, which like... Uh, that that is an anti-capitalist form of, of of property, and that is basically what I'm trying to create. There's only really one other aspect. Oh yeah, yeah. How do you insure? It? Insurance is also a big problem. Basically, uh, what you need to do—that's why you need to create a product warranty for a building system, because you, in effect, need to have one company that warranties the product in terms of its application, and you need to have another company. Uh, you bet. Well. We're getting into really fine details here, but basically you have to use a traditional development loan in order to actually build the building. And you then have a back-to-back long-term loan or bond, which uh, is one-day overlap with your traditional development loan. So you use traditional development finance from a traditional developer uh, uh, financial institution to build the building, and then once the building is built, it securitizes its own loan. So you, you... I don't know if that makes sense if you, you basically swap it over. Um, and that's how you try and avoid that problem. But <laughs> as I said, proof's in the pudding. I mean, I'm very much trying to push these models. But again, we won't know until we really can be in a position to start building these things, which, of course, I'm working towards. I don't know. It might be an epic failure. Who knows? But, I mean, that's the, um, you know, that's the ambition. And there, the more we work on it, the more we realize how many of these problems there are that we didn't even think about. And for sure, there are many others that uh, haven't been considered yet. But, yeah, the insurance is a, is a big problem as well, especially if you're doing a bond, because bonds, you just get junk bond status as soon as you do something of this kind. Right. Especially if you're in an earthquake zone. Are you in an earthquake zone in Melbourne? No, not yet. Oh, but, yeah, generally, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, those types of... Uh, well, you, you just have to design for different building codes. If you're designing for 100 years in Los Angeles you have to assume that it has to withstand one of the most powerful earthquakes that, you know, has ever recorded because, in principle, that will occur. But, yeah, I mean, this is, we now enter into the domain of the management of risk and the elimination of risk, which is something that Rem mentioned before. Uh, I would say, yes, we are in an era which attempts to eliminate risk. uh, And, actually, this is an attempt, in a way, to eliminate it in a positive sense. Um, Anyway, hopefully that was a coherent answer Can I ask you first uh, to thank Jack Silk for his presentation tonight? (laughs)